Hello and welcome to the Movie Muse podcast, episode 14. In this episode, the Movie Muse team will score some very valid points, hit on some interesting topics, throw some personal thoughts out into the open, have a musical score or two. So hopefully things will run smoothly. And our goal is to provide you with our usual interesting and insightful mix of musing of the world of movies, games and much more. If you haven't guessed it, our main topic this evening is the world of sport. And no, not ITV sports reviews from the 70s and 80s. So there'll be no surprise guest appearance from Dickie Davis. We'll be covering all things from sports. So get yourself a ticket, grab a pie and a pint or a prawn sandwich on your way to the executive box and sit back for a game of much more than two halves. In the Movie Muse Arena tonight... We have in goal, Matt the Cat Corn. Meow. At left back, and by that la- I mean left back in the dressing room, we have Gordon the Sloth Sinclair. Charming. And playing up front, poaching around the box as usual, my good self, Simon Onion Bag, but more like Onion Rings Burton. You can keep up to date with everything Movie Muse related on our website, which is www.moviemuse.net, and on Facebook and Twitter. And talking of the website, here is Gordon to give us an update of what we've been putting on the website in the last month. There's been quite a lot of stuff on the website since our last show. We've had a rundown of the Academy Awards and the awards that we felt should have been given rather than the ones that the Academies did give. We have a review of the Breaking Bad movie, which is a fan-made edit of all 62 hours of the show, distilled down into a two-hour movie. We've got a couple of box set reviews of The Purge and of Lethal Weapon. And we also have our usual Freeview Movies of the Week updates. And we've also got the latest update on our Movie Views 500, where we're aiming to watch 500 different films across the team within this calendar year. Okay, thank you, Gordon. Right, as usual, we're going to kick off with what we've been watching. And this month, we're going to ask each member what their best film they've seen was, their worst film, and the last film they've seen since the last podcast. So on that note, we're going over to Matt. What have you been watching? Thanks, Simon. Uh, I'm going to start with my best film that I've watched recently. There's a couple of films that are in my top 20 that I've watched recently. I'm not counting those, but they were Robocop and Shaun of the Dead. The best film that I hadn't seen before was Logan, recently released at the cinema, the finale, if you like, of the Wolverine story. And for me, this was finally a superhero film aimed at a mature audience. Deadpool, which was released last year, was an R-rated film, but it was really a pretty straightforward superhero film, only R-rated due to the violence and bad language. This one, I found, was a much more adult-orientated film story-wise as well. The story centres on an ageing Logan whose regenerative powers are failing and is happy to live in seclusion looking after the increasingly senile Professor Xavier, but is forced into action when a young mutant comes into their lives who needs his help and protection. It's an incredibly violent and gritty film that pulls absolutely no punches right from the opening scene. Within five minutes, you know you're in for a very violent movie as he takes on a gang of thugs trying to steal his car with the blades flying all over the place being plunged through heads and so forth throughout the film so yeah very violent unlike any of the other x-men films in that respect it's basically a road movie as they go on the run from their pursuers and interact with various characters along the way the action is not particularly spectacular it's just straightforward fighting for the most part the film is definitely more about the characters and the journey that they go on there's also some humorous and heartwarming moments particularly when the characters meet up with a family and have dinner at their farm which gives a little bit of normality to these abnormal characters 
Hugh Jackman is excellent as the aging and frustrated Logan, showing just how much better an actor he is now than when the X-Men franchise started. But the standout for me was Patrick Stewart, who plays the old and confused Professor X brilliantly. I mean, they're not going to get any awards for this film, you know, Oscar-wise or anything like that, but I think both of them put in brilliant acting performances, way beyond what you'd expect for these characters. You may never particularly care for these characters, but when you watch this film, it will make you care about them, and I think that's a tribute to them as actors. If you want to call it a superhero, film then it's the best superhero film since the dark knight and if it is to be the final film featuring logan and professor x then it's a fitting finale for them and i'm going to give that four and a half stars and if there's a better superhero film this year i'll be very surprised my worst film that i've watched recently i'm not going to talk about now because i think we'll be talking about it later but the last film i watched a few days ago was a film called top dog it's a 2015 film originally known as wiener dog internationals <laughs> it's a cheapo film that i bought for two quid from asda for my wife because she likes dashens and it's a sequel to the earlier wiener dog nationals which sees the winner of that competition a dashend called shelly enter an international competition whilst her family deals with people trying their best to prevent her competing it's about as good as you'd expect a family film about dashend racing to be there's some terrible acting in it but it was still amusing and entertaining enough although I've pretty much forgotten exactly what happened in it already so I'm going to give that two and a half stars anyone seen Wiener Dog Internationals? Right, no. no thanks very much Matt Gordon what have you been watching? Okay, well, for my best film, I managed to get a couple of tickets to see a preview screening of Free Fire, the latest Ben Wheatley movie. And on previous shows, I've said I'm a big fan of the director Ben Wheatley. All of his previous films have been pretty low-budget British black comedies. His biggest film to date, I suppose, was High Rise, and that's probably my least favourite of his, where he got the biggest budget but was kind of hamstrung by a very strange screenplay because the book is so out there that it's based on. So with this one it was a little bit back to his old style of very dark humor but it's also his first film that he's co-written that is based in america and it's basically a reservoir dog style single location gun deal gone wrong film the first scene is basically the whole film and it doesn't let up this single scene where the gun deal between a gun dealer and a gang goes wrong and they end up shooting at each other for about 100 minutes and it's really funny very violent in places but not prolonged and it's got some fantastic performances from people like sam riley michael smiley brie larson and it's just a fantastically violent funny non-stop film and i think it's going to get him a lot of attention with american audiences this time but the other thing that was really good about the screening that i got to see apart from it being over a month before the film comes out in the uk was that the director was there and so was sam riley one of the main actors and did a q a afterwards they answered questions from the audience some were quite interesting some were quite inane and some were quite baffling to be honest but he explained things like why the film is set in the 1970s which is just basically because mobile phones haven't been invented and it would have ruined the flow of the film if somebody could have just used the mobile phone to get out of the situation and after he'd given this talk and him and sam had been telling us about their experiences you got the opportunity to just go up and chat to them afterwards and I went over and had a chat with Ben I asked him if he was hoping this would be his big breakout film because all of his films up to now have been very British and he said yeah that was quite deliberate is to try and make this uh, his big film that's going to make him break America get to the bigger audiences and then hopefully you know get an opportunity at uh, bigger budget films and and I also asked him if he worried about the humour and having to change the humour for an American audience and he said he basically didn't change the humour he just wrote what he found funny 
money. And I'm glad he did that because it definitely worked for me. Whether it will translate to the Americans, I don't know. But it was definitely a very British American film, if that makes sense. But then I had a chat with Sam Riley and I asked him about his accent because he does a Boston accent in the film. And he was saying that it's really interesting because there are two characters in the film who've got really strong Boston accents. And both of them are from Bradford, which was quite amazing because virtually everybody else in the film is either Irish playing an Irishman or is American playing an American. And then you have these two guys from Bradford with strong Boston accents, which was really funny. So, yeah, that was fantastic. That was a really good opportunity to go and see that film and to chat to those guys. The worst film that I've watched, I was going to say The Love Witch, which is technically the worst film that I've seen. It's absolutely awful film that I just beg you not to waste your time on. But I'm not going to choose that as my worst film. I'm going to choose a film that was billed as being fantastic, did massively well in America. And the film's Get Out, and it's basically a horror movie with racial satire maybe and they've tried to shoehorn racial tensions into a film that isn't very interesting without it and the film isn't a horror there's nothing horrific in it it's not particularly funny even though it's written by a comedian it's actually written by one of the guys who wrote and starred in Keanu which is one of my favorite comedies of last year so I'm surprised he couldn't get a couple more jokes in there and I was just so disappointed with it so I'm going to class Get Out as my worst film just because of how disappointed I was you probably will get some enjoyment out of it but after all the hype I was expecting twice as good and finally for me the last film that i watched was space jam it's genuinely funny the comedy still stands up after all this time the animation still stands up after all this time which is an even bigger surprise especially when you look at something like who framed roger rabbit like we talked about a few shows ago that hasn't really stood up as well so i watched space jam still love it still think it's the best animation live action hybrid that there is and the scores for my three films then are free fire i'm going to give four stars Get Out, I'm going to give three stars. And Space Jam, I'll also give four stars. Thanks, Gordon. Interesting stuff there as well. You don't agree about Space Jam, though, Simon. I saw your review. <laughs> it was all right. It was engaging enough to a point. And then I just, I don't think the animation still holds up that well. It's all right. But I thought it was that's... excellent. Yeah, it wasn't as good as I thought it was going to be. And Mark Jordan, I think, it's dreadful in it. But there you go. I don't. Right. I actually thought he was quite good, but we'll talk about that later. All right. Right, um, my bit what I've been watching, I watched The End of Jericho after we followed on from our Nuclear Holocaust podcast. I actually finished the series in the end and it was good, but it sort of ended a bit too quick. The films I've been watching, I sat and watched through the trilogy of The Purge. It consists of three films, 2013's The Purge, 2014's The Purge Anarchy and 2016's The Purge Election Year. It's a dystopic America where every year there is a 12-hour period during which all crime, including murder, is legal. The first film, it stars Ethan Hawke, Ina Headley, and it's based in an affluent Los Angeles neighbourhood. On the Purge night in the year 2022, the family becomes a target of a masked gang of criminals due to their actions in helping a wounded stranger to take shelter in their home. The guys get in and it's all really based around the house and I like the confines of it and the way that it doesn't really go outside into the city everything takes place in the house and it just make it extremely tense and this probably was my favorite one out of the three films purge anarchy is different it takes to the streets stars frank grillo and they have to take a journey through the city so you take it away from the confines of a house and they journey through the city trying to get from point to point to get to a safe place and it adds an extra dimension to it which i think is excellent in the fact that you're now out in the city and you're actually seeing the purge at first hand rather than just experiencing someone's house the third one with the way the election year in the actual time you can guess what's coming up because the founding fathers overthrew the government and they become the guys that took over america and brought the purge into operation and obviously with election year there's something coming 
coming up. So Frank Rillo's again is protecting the senator, and they, it ends up on the streets. And it's very similar to the second one. So I think it's going to be probably my least favourite of the three, only because it's very similar to the second. But overall, I would give the Purge box set three and a half stars. So that would be my worst films because that's the lowest score out of what I've watched this month. They weren't particularly bad films, but they just come out overall the lowest score. My best film is the 1979 mod classic Quadrophenia. It's loosely based on the 1973 rock opera of the same name by the band The Who. Unlike the adaptation of their previous one, Tommy, Quadrophenia is not a musical film and the band do not appear in it. It does star Phil Daniels as Jimmy. He's a young 1960s London-based mod. He tries to escape from his dead-end job as a mailroom boy by dancing, partying and taking amphetamines, riding a scooter around and brawling with motorcycle and riding rockers. After he and his friends participate in a huge brawl with the rockers in Brighton, he gets arrested, his life spirals out of control and he loses his girlfriend, played by Leslie Ash, and discovers that his idol, popular nickname Mark, Ace Face, played by Sting, is actually a bellboy at a hotel. It's a film I've always enjoyed. It's based around Field Daniels and how he tries to escape from the humdrum life, and I think that's what a lot of the mod scene was about. All the cut suits, all the scooters, and trying to be just different than where you came from, trying to make yourself better, trying to enjoy life to his best. And the rockers just seem the antidote to that. They took their bikes, greasy, dirt, and then it always was lots of uh, trouble in Brighton at that period. And it all portrays it very well. The choreography's good, the music's good, the acting's pretty good. It brings you right into the heart of what you think the whole scene is about. I always used to have this bugbear about when he sits up in bed in one of the scenes. The train in the background is an Intercity 125, which came out in 1976. The film's based in 1965. <laughs> Rewatching it for the first time for Donkey's Years, I've actually found they didn't care a hoot about that because when he rides his scooter around right at the start of the film, all the cars in the background are 70s cars. So they obviously weren't worried too much about authenticity. So there is some 60s cars thrown in in places, but they don't try and hide the fact it's filmed in a later period. I suppose it was hard to do with him riding around the town without them closing off the whole place. But yeah, that's not a problem. Always like the film. Really like revisiting it after not seeing it for such a long time. And I will give Quadrophenia four stars out of five. One thing I would say about Quadrophenia is not just the home music, but the soundtrack is really good. Not the Who's Quadrophenia album, which in its own right is really good, but the actual soundtrack that includes all of the modern Northern Soul kind of tracks. Brilliant soundtrack, that. The last film I've watched is the 2013 American action horror film, World War Z. It stars Brad Pitt as Jerry Lane, who's a former United Nations investigator who must travel the world to find a way to stop a zombie pandemic. The thing I loved about World War Z is literally from the very first scene was the action the start and the, the sequence right up until they escape was pretty impressive. I thought the effects on most of the film were really good. I like the zombie attack on Egypt, I think it was. Was it Egypt? Where they all broke in over the walls and scaled it. You've got this tension of, is you going to be able to stop it? They end up in Wales, of all places, at an institute that's trying to develop an antidote. And there is a lot of tension in there. And I'm really at the grip of my seat and I'm really, really impressed with Brad Pitt and the acting and the whole thing was just incredible from the start to finish I was very very impressed with it I did actually go in slight trepidation I didn't know how it was going to approach another zombie film but it was played really well so actually overall I would also give World War Z four stars out of five yeah, Graham gave quite a detailed review some shows back of World War Z, which made yeah. me then go out and watch it. And I really enjoyed it. I was very surprised. I think it's Israel, I think, is yeah. the Middle East country, because I think, isn't there an institute in Israel or somewhere that, yeah, that so. is doing something? But yeah, I thought that was excellent as well. Have you seen that one, Matt? Yeah, I have. I think I am probably talked a little bit about it when Graham talked about it, which I think was probably a third show or something like that. But yeah, I enjoyed it. It was a little bit of a different take on the zombie genre in as much as the way they all 
all kind of move as a swarm i thought was quite fun different to the usual sort of shambling zombies that we're used to so yeah mm. don't remember it too well now it's been a while since i saw it but i remember enjoying it yeah it was a bit like the girl with all the gifts when the zombies there they hold still and then when they get a sound they all swarm in that as well so that's why i think we enjoy that in a different way than the shambling like you say right thanks very much gentlemen Right, we go into our coming soon section. Here is where the Movie Muse team look at what's upcoming in the next few months of movies and tell us what floats their boat, so to speak. So I will go over to Matt. What have you been looking forward to coming out soon, Matt? The film I noticed that's coming out fairly soon that looks interesting is a film called Aftermath. And that stars Arnold Schwarzenegger as a man whose wife and daughter are killed in a mid-air collision between two planes, which is caused by the negligence of an air traffic controller. Arnie's character is then determined to confront the man he feels is responsible and tracks him down, with the ultimate outcome of their confrontation not clear from the trailer, thankfully, although it does give a lot of other stuff away that it didn't need to. Interestingly, this is based on a true story about a Danish air traffic controller that was murdered by a Russian man who held him responsible for his family's death after a similar mid-air collision in 2002. That might give the ending away, but I suspect they might do something different with the confrontation. It'll be interesting to see Arnie in another non-action role after his fairly impressive showing in 2015's Maggie. Good to see him not just doing the usual muscle-bound stuff and actually trying something a bit different. So I don't think it's got amazing reviews from the preview so far but it's an interesting film that i might check out and that comes out in the uk on the 7th of april thanks very much matt as i really enjoyed most of this series something that caught my eye which i'd completely gone off my radar and forgotten about and that was coming out i thought oh it could be quite interesting and it's pirates of the caribbean dead men tell no tales it's the fifth installment of the Pirates of the Caribbean series. Not technically going to be the last, apparently, even though a lot of people thought it was. It's the fancy swashbuckler film, and it's again going to obviously feature Johnny Depp as the pirate, Jack Sparrow, and Orlando Bloom returns as Will Turner. The sort of premise is going to be very similar to the others. Jack Sparrow is pursued by an old rival, Armando Salazar, who, along with his Spanish Navy crew, has escaped from the Devil's Triangle and is determined to kill every pirate at sea. Jack seeks the trident of Poseidon, a powerful artifact that grants his possessor total control over the seas in order to beat Salazar. It's probably going to be much of the same kind of thing, drinking rum, getting chased by uh, other pirates and all the usual stuff. But I just thought, yeah, no, it's all right. I quite liked some of the others. So it's gradually seemed to have gone down, but I'm going to give it one last chance and see if it can pull it up again. And it's good to see Orlando back in this film. It might be okay. And I've always liked the others. It's always quite lighthearted. So, and I'd like Johnny Depp as an actor. So we'll see how it goes. And now we go to a trailer choice, and this month is Gordon's choice. So what have you got for us, Gordon? I've gone for the new film from director Edgar Wright, the guy behind Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz and World's End, with Nick Frost and Simon Pegg. So following on from that and his Scott Pilgrim versus the World film, he's gone all American bank job for his latest film, which is called Baby Driver. It looks to be a stylish, over-the-top film about a young getaway driver who falls in love and wants to leave the business, but is dragged back in. It stars Ansel Elgort, who is apparently big in the Divergent series, and Kevin Spacey is the mob boss who won't let him get out. Jamie Foxx is also in there, and Lily James. So it's got a decent cast. I think the trailer looks really exciting, really stylish the way he's done some of the car chase footage. So let's have a look and see what you think of Baby Driver. Shop, let's talk it. The target is an armored truck, the perimeter trust, 10 a.m. sharp. Switch card, baby. Hit the long state parking structure. Start in the a.m. Questions. I got a question, Doc. Why would I believe phones over here heard a goddamn word you said? He ain't even listening. Baby, 
The target is an armored truck at Perimeter Trust in Dunwoody, 10 a.m. sharp. The switch car is ready, but you want me to hit the long state parking structure and get a high vehicle that stays colder longer? It needs to be ready for an 8.30 start. Questions? You've been my driver for every job since we met. You're the best in the business. I'm gonna need you behind the wheel again. One more job and I'm done. One more job and we're straight. Hey, hey baby. Why is he listening to music all the time? He had an accident when he was a kid. He's got mental problems? I'm the one got the mental problems in the crew. Position take. What is your name? Baby. Your name's Baby. B-A-B-Y, Baby. <laughs> in this business. The moment you catch feelings. Is the moment you catch a bullet. You are my lucky charm, and I'm not doing this job without you. Your uh, waitress girlfriend, she's cute. Let's keep it that way. I have to drive again. It's not what I want. And what do you want? To get out of here. You win. I'm in, baby. Twenty-four hours and being descended upon by this entire city. Have you been talking about us? Supposed to squirrel on the road, not those cops. We're getting out. I have to end this. What's happening, baby? Woo! That's some Oscar shit right there. Sorry, ma'am. Okay, so you've all watched that. Let's have your thoughts. Simon, what do you think? Really liked it. Straight away, I just like the style. Kevin Spacey's, you can just see what kind of character he's playing straight away and what he's like. And the characters look interesting. I like the interaction literally straight away. The driving, they've obviously thrown a bit of that into the trailer to pique your interest. They look well constructed and fun. The story had me hooked. I'd like to find out what happens. Definitely going to keep an eye on that and going to try and watch it. Excellent. Matt? Well, based on the trailer, it didn't really do a lot for me. Actually, thinking back, I wasn't unimpressed by anything. It just didn't really excite me that much. It reminded me a bit from the trailer of the Transporter, obviously with all the clever driving. And also, it looks like it takes a turn a bit like True Romance, where the guy and his love interest are heading off to escape the baddies. Both of those are good films, but this just seemed a bit generic to me. I do like the concept of this guy, which the idea is that the guy's got some kind of hearing problem, and while he's driving, he's listening to music, and that's what kind of keeps him focused on the driving. But they didn't really show much of that in action in the trailer, so it's hard to say how good that's going to be. It may depend a lot on what music they use, and I imagine they've got some good tunes lined up to accompany those driving sequences. Having said all that, Edgar Wright's yet to do a bad film, really. Scott Pilgrim is probably the worst of them, and that wasn't a bad film by any means, so it might be worth a look. I'll probably wait for the reviews before I make a decision on whether I go and see it or not. I did like in the trailer the Halloween mask scene where the guy had bought Mike Myers masks, Mike Myers as Austin Powers, rather than Michael Myers Halloween masks, so there's obviously a bit of humour in there as well. 
Okay, well, a mixed bag of comments, but we all seem relatively positive about it. Baby Driver's released on the 18th of August in the UK. And if anybody's interested in a bit more information on Edgar Wright's films, you can find him in our Director's Club feature on the website, where we give a brief review of all of his previous films. So you can see where he stands in the Director's League over at moviemuse.net. Excellent. Thanks, Gordon. Yeah, look forward to that one. Right, now we move on to Film Club, and it was my choice this month. I chose the 1977 comedy film, directed by George Roy Hill and written by Nancy Dowd, starring Paul Newman and Michael Lonkin, called Slapshot. This depicts a minor league hockey team that resorts to violent play to gain popularity in a declining factory town. Reggie Dunlop is Paul Newman. He's an ageing player coach of the Charleston Chiefs hockey team. He then sees that the owner's thinking of winding them up and he doesn't want to let it go without having one final bit of flirtation with success. He changes tactics and decides he wants to try and make them toughen up and using fighting within the game to G the crowd up. And it does work to a point. I mean, the crowd starts swelling and the violence on the pitch seems to just spur them on. And the hockey takes a back seat and they're trying to fight off being closed down and being disbanded. And eventually things work out and they get where they want to be. The thing that I always remembered about it was the handsome brothers. It's the three brothers he gets in who don't know what they're going to be about. These three guys with glasses who don't even look like hockey players. And they come on as substitutes and they just smack up people and trick them and just cause nothing but mayhem. And it adds a quite difference to the matches they play in. And everyone in the town starts coming back to watch the hockey. So it does have the right thing, but it also gets to a point that Paul Newman thinks this is not the right way to go about it. Let's try and get back to old time hockey, as he calls it, and actually play some hockey. But then by that point, playing the champions in the final but yeah it's something i remember from when i was young watched it when we were teenagers it's a long time since i've seen it and i still quite like the film paul newman i like his character i like the way he g's them up you can see him as the old-time hockey pro getting to the end of his career and wants to sort of go maybe into the management side of it the coaching side hansen brothers come on entertaining it was only a bit i didn't really enjoy the endings a little bit weak wasn't quite what i would have expected to finish it off but i suppose it got the end result i like bleak 70s sort of settings on the factory towns and find it interesting the way life was then and and how things like this came along to try and bring the towns back up again and give people something to partake in and look forward to. There was a lot of that going on at the time, using sport to try and bring the town together. And it's no different to a local football team in England, probably getting beat every week in, week out, and maybe trying something different to try and bring everyone together. So I can see it's sort of a parallel there. But as I say, a bit of a weekend ending, bit of a drive, but all in all, I like the film and I give it three and a half stars out of five. So let's go over to the boys. Gordon, what was your thoughts? Well, I found Slapshot didn't have enough comedy to be a comedy didn't have enough drama to be a drama and it didn't have enough sport to be a sport film either and the only thing that it's got in abundance is fighting which you know I quite like violent films but this wasn't even good fighting the moral of the story is cheating's the best way to win because even the very end they use cheating to win even when he decides he wants to play real hockey it's the cheats that win it also teaches you that it's absolutely fine to be an arse to your wife so long as you treat her better as soon as she's had a makeover which I found quite odd particularly because it was written by a woman I found it quite misogynist the film as a whole which I was a bit concerned by and I think Paul Newman is dreadfully miscast in the film he plays it like he's in a completely different film he doesn't know how to do comedy and whilst his performance isn't bad it's just bad in this film and probably the final thing that I'd say about the film is it's at least half an hour too long 
long. I'll give it a little bit of benefit because it's got a great soundtrack. I really liked the soundtrack. But other than that, there was very, very little that I found to enjoy in the film. Apart from, as Simon's mentioned, the Hanson brothers, there was nothing funny about it. So for it to be a slapstick comedy without any slapstick and without any comedy, it was quite disappointing. So I'm going to give it two stars and I actually think I'm being generous there. Okay, thanks, Gordon. It's going well, isn't it? Let's go over to Matt. What did you think? Well, I do agree with Gordon on a lot of points there. It started off quite funny. I thought the first maybe 10 or 15 minutes was quite entertaining. But there's virtually no story. And as Gordon said, it's massively overlong. But I do disagree with him because I think you could quite easily take an hour out of the middle of this film (laughs) and it would have barely any effect on it at all. It's basically some guys are playing hockey and then they decide to play hockey with some violence and then they play more hockey with some violence, play more hockey with some violence, play more hockey with some violence, and then at the end, play some hockey with a little bit less violence, but then end up in a big fight anyway. That's pretty much the story. There was a bit of other stuff going on, but frankly, I didn't really care. Paul Newman, again, I agree with Gordon, really. He seems either bored or embarrassed to be involved. Most of the lines just don't seem to fit the kind of character that he would usually play. And as a result, although I don't think he's a bad actor, he seems bad in this film. The -the over-the-top violence of the final hockey match was entertaining, but overall the film is just very one-dimensional, as I've said, and quite boring. I would have to disagree with one thing Gordon said. He says there wasn't any slapstick in it. Well, there was. There was lots of hockey sticks being slapped at things. Yeah, there was, yeah. Not quite the slapstick you were hoping for, though. I probably wouldn't rate it quite as harshly as Gordon has. It it entertained me in certain ways, but I'm going to give it two and a half stars. I imagine in the 70s it would have been a little bit more entertaining because you didn't have other things to compare it to like you do now. But watching it for the first time 40 years after it was released was not a great experience. Thanks for that, chaps. Ah, knocked it down a bit, but I'm just probably roasting spectacles with things like this. That gives Slapshot a mm, middling 2.7 out of 5. Puts it ninth on our leaderboard, just below Way of the Gun and just above Bottle Rocket. Poor old Slapshot. Right, Slapshot in the face. Right, now it's over to our section where we're going to talk about a TV show. Obviously, this month's podcast is all about sports. So we're going to go over to Gordon, who has got a TV show and a sporting theme for us. Gordon, what have we got? Well, as usual, I had more than one choice that I was deliberating over. And I almost chose The Manageress, the Channel 4 series starring Cherry Lungi as a businesswoman who becomes the manager of a professional football team. I didn't pick it, but if anyone wants to go back and watch it, which I really recommend you do, because I think it's ripe for a remake, to be honest. The All 12 episodes are available on YouTube. It's typical late 80s TV fare, but it's actually quite entertaining as well. So I'd check that out, but that's not what I picked. What I chose instead is The League, which is an American sitcom based on six friends in Chicago who are all members of a fantasy football league. And that's obviously fantasy American football. The series is absolutely full of trash talk. There's loads of pretty adult humour and it's all semi-improvised. So I think some of the trash talk you can imagine real people saying, even though it's really stupid what they're saying, you can imagine that that's what friends do say to each other. And some of it gets pretty dirty, which I found particularly hilarious. The series ran for seven seasons between 2007 and 2015 and the episodes are all short. They're all only around 22, 25 minutes. The main storyline follows 
the progress of the league as these six friends try to win the Shiva Bowl, which is a trophy named after a girl from their high school who later becomes a recurring cast member. Shiva Kamini Somakandankaram or something like that, which is a chant in the film as well, which is quite amusing when they're shouting it when they're trying to get themselves some good luck to win the Shiva Bowl. And I just love the characters in the programme. They're all really different, which I liked. And the main character, I suppose, if there is one, played by Mark Duplass, he's called Pete and he's always been one of life's winners but just at the start of the series he splits up with his girlfriend early on and he becomes more cynical as it goes on and has to start facing the fact that he's not always going to be a winner and then you've got Kevin Pete's best friend who's rubbish at fantasy football and relies on his overbearing control freak wife Jenny to pick his team for him early on and then has to rebel against her and that's quite a nice dynamic with them two when they start being rivals in the league Ruxin is a sneaky and shallow lawyer but he's got a very hot wife and knows it and make sure everybody else knows it as well andre who is a plastic surgeon so he's got plenty of money but he loves garish fashion and is the butt of every joke in the program and then you've got taco who's the lovable idiot who comes up with all sorts of crazy business ideas like the ebdbb and b which i don't know if you guys will have seen when he gets up to that which is the eskimo brother database bed and breakfast which is really funny when he gets into that whole escapade and these things don't make him any money but they never stop him getting laid in almost every single episode of the show which is quite funny Taco's one of my favourite characters I've seen the full seven series and I really enjoyed it I don't think there's a weak series in there really although you could say that it takes a while to warm to all the characters so maybe series one is the slightly weaker one but luckily season one's only got six episodes whereas all the rest are 13 and I've always thought that we could really do with a UK remake of this and I think it'd work really well if you translated it into Premier League fantasy football instead of NFL you could have your guest stars from football clubs and I really do think somebody a good writer could do a great translation of this show to a UK audience so I'm hoping that one day we might see something like that so that's The League it's a programme I watched quite a while ago but I've enjoyed re-watching it all again let's see what you guys thought and how much of the programme you've watched through so let's go to you Matt well, I wasn't much of a fan of this, unfortunately. I watched the first three episodes. I know we were intending to watch the first six, but after three, I think I'd made a decision about it, which might not be entirely fair. I found the first episode fairly entertaining, but the other two I didn't really find funny at all. I guess it only barely fits the theme of this show because it doesn't really have much to do with sport at all, and it's not a sport I'm interested in either, and I don't really understand how they do fantasy football over there either, so that probably didn't help. And I think you're right, if they did a U UK remake of it with real football I'd probably watch that and probably be more entertained by it because I do participate in fantasy football every year most of the characters I didn't really like that much a couple of the blokes are very ugly and incredibly smackable <laughs> there's the guy I think it's the lawyer guy that you're talking about yeah who also portrays the douche in Parks and Recreation him, yeah. yeah and I just can't look at that guy I just hate him <laughs> the female characters are also way too attractive for their partners as you mentioned yep. as you've said maybe the first series isn't the best it might be one of those series that gets better as you get used to the characters such as parks and recreation which falls into the same category but unlike that the characters aren't likable enough for me to want to persevere and overall i found it quite boring for the three episodes that i did watch so it didn't really do it for me i'm afraid okay well simon what did you think 
I sat down to watch it with quite an open mind, really. And I'd like to say I quite enjoyed it, but not so much for the characters. It was just the actual story and the way it developed. And playing fantasy football like you have, Gordon, you know what it's like when you're trying to set your team up. I think this is obviously American way of doing it with American football. It's very different with the draft and stuff. So I think it obviously affects how fantasy football was done there. I can't imagine them being quite over the top of the way these guys did it. But it probably does happen. There must be some way that this happens in America when people are doing their fantasy football teams. It's a typical of what American sitcom, character development and character interaction but the limited topic of fantasy football they do glean out as much comedy and as much story as they can I've watched all six episodes I think I've actually gone into the second series and the characters are okay they are pretty much what I expect like Matt says yeah they are pretty ordinary guys and managed to pull some quite good girls so I don't know how that works but the direct interaction is quite funny you got a little bit over the top and unbelievable lengths with the characters especially when they do the new draft on the second one getting in the famous guys in to do it and to help and the lands with their teams just the lengths they go to to try and get a name and to get a drop on what the formation or what the players are going to be but yeah I'd stick with it for a bit it is a typical sort of American sitcom sort of down the middle of the road it's pretty good it's a bit different to what I expected which made it a bit more interesting than I expected as well yeah I kind of agree with what Matt said about it being similar in a way to Parks and Recreation in that I watched the first series of Parks and Recreation and thought it was absolutely dreadful and only stuck with it because people told me it became brilliant and re-watching the first series of The League it's probably similar I don't think it ever gets to the heights that Parks and Recreation does but i think series two three and four definitely are so much better than the first series that in a way apart from the fact that you need to build up knowledge of the characters and you need to love and hate them i think you have to go through that slog of the first series to get to the really good stuff so i think you're missing out matt but there's a lot of things to watch and i'm one for giving up if it's really not engaging me so credit to you for uh, sticking to your guns and just turn it off if it's not doing it for you so, yeah i think that's the problem isn't it there's so much stuff to watch and if something doesn't We've probably watched the first couple of episodes of half a dozen different American TV shows already this year, you know, and just gone, nah, there's something better than that to watch. And yet, ironically, we then stick with things that we've watched lots of seasons of and they're probably nowhere near what they used to be, but you're just engaged with them enough to just keep on going with them. So that's just how it is. Okay, well, our usual recommendation for the TV shows is are you going to carry on watching beyond what you watched for this review? I have seen it all before and I'm up to series, uh, I think, three and a half re-watching it and I'm definitely going to carry on and re-watch the whole series. So it's a yes for me. Matt? No, I think I've made it fairly clear I'm not going to. Okay, and Simon, what about you? Yeah, I've gone into the second series now, so I will keep watching it, see how it develops and goes on further. So, yeah, definitely. Just a point on the fantasy football thing. I remember years and years ago when some of my friends started playing fantasy football, they did actually used to do it the same way that they do it over there, where each person in the league could only pick a player from the team, and if they picked it, no one else could. So some people do play fantasy football that way in this country. I think we all just tend to play it on the internet where that's not going to be an option because there's only a limited number of players to choose from yeah that's spot on and i do know that people still do that draft system over here and i think you're absolutely right in the reason why that doesn't work if you're playing with thousands of people it's just not possible but when it's a close-knit group of friends then i think that actually is a more useful way of doing it and it makes it more fun and there's even more rivalry and that draft at the start of the season where you end up bidding and bargaining for players that's one of the highlights of those kind of fantasy leagues and that comes more and more into it in the league the first show in every series which is about the draft is always really really important and really fun and is probably more important than the championship game that they have at the end of the series i wouldn't mind getting into a proper fantasy league that does that draft system so uh, yeah maybe we should do one next season 
maybe we should film it as well and then we're making the oh, UK yeah. version. Let's make the UK version. <laughs> and it's all just trash talk. It was all just telling Simon about sex acts that he does to Graham or something. <laughs> okay, so with two of us saying that we'll carry on and one saying stop, that gives the League TV series a 67% recommendation. Okay, moving on, we're going to do our original soundtrack section. Obviously, on the theme of sports, Matt has chosen the soundtrack to talk about this month. So, what are we going to be listening to, Matthew? Well, the topic of sport gave me the opportunity to pick one of my favourite soundtracks of all time, which is the soundtrack to the 1985 Sylvester Stallone film Rocky IV. For the fourth instalment of the Rocky saga, the producers dispensed with the services of Bill Conti, who composed the iconic score for the original film and its first two sequels, and instead they went for a typical 80s soundtrack that primarily offered a mixture of pop rock tunes and a synthesizer-heavy electronic score by Vince DiCola, whose only other notable soundtrack is Transformers the movie. Many of the songs and themes would accompany montages in the film which were more than plentiful. The opening track of the album is another offering from Survivor who did the Eye of the Tiger on Rocky 3. The song's called Burning Heart and the lyrics tap into the Cold War theme of the film with the line in particular, is it East versus West or Man against Man? It's a typical slice of 80s melodic rock but not as memorable as Eye of the Tiger which is also included on the Rocky 4 soundtrack. Other notable tracks include James Brown Living in America, which the Godfather of Soul himself performs in the film, Robert Tepper's No Easy Way Out, and John Cafferty's Hearts on Fire, which also accompany montages in the film, and there's also offerings from Go West, and the go-to man for any 80s soundtrack, Kenny Loggins, who duets on a track with Gladys Knight. The soundtrack also features two themes from Vince DiCola's score, the training montage and war, which accompanies the final rounds of the fight between Rocky and Ivan Drago in the film. Fans of Bill Conti's famous themes shouldn't be too disappointed by the soundtrack as an adaptation of Gonna Fly Now appears at the end of the Hearts on Fire song and the iconic Rocky theme is incorporated into the aforementioned War by Vince DiCola as well. There was a second version of the soundtrack released in 2010 which was just the Vince DiCola electronic score with none of the pop rock songs but it's the 1985 version of the soundtrack that we've listened to and is most recognisable. For me it's a classic 80s soundtrack with all the cheese you would expect from a soundtrack from that era and undoubtedly my favourite of all soundtracks in the 80s. I used to listen to this on a cassette back in the late 80s pretty much until I wore it out. Best song for me therefore is hard to pick but I'll go with Vince DiCola's training montage, classic piece of 80s electronica which is the perfect accompaniment to the best of the many montages in the film. And with my nostalgic 1980s head on this would be a 5 star rating which I very rarely give but in fairness there are a couple of duff tracks but still I think 5 really excellent tracks and 2 or 3 decent ones so it's still with four and a half stars for me. So what do you guys think of it, Simon? Yeah, I thought it was really good. It is very 80s, very of its time. As you say, it's quite a lot of the heavier like rock songs on it, but there's also a lot of synth. It's just such an 80s sound, which because that's when it was. As an 80s music fan, I really liked it. There's some big tracks on there. Survivor obviously come back again. And there was also, as I say, Kenny Loggins and Go West. I didn't even realise they were on there until I listened to it. So that was quite a pleasant surprise. These tracks fit the film perfectly. I think it's a very good, a very strong soundtrack. The track that I'm going to go for is one that I liked at the time. I'm not a very big fan of this particular artist, but this one always sticks in my mind. I think it's one of the Now albums, I presume, because it sticks in my head from that time as a teenager. The James Bound track, Living in America. 
obviously it was released at the same time in 85 and it will always remind me of that time so there was a good feeling but I think the whole soundtrack as a whole is very strong very listenable to be honest I didn't find too much I didn't like on it and overall I'd give it 4 out of 5 very good the James Brown thing obviously accompanies with prelude to Apollo Creed's battle with Ivan Drago as well in the film right. so it's very memorable of the film as well as being a decent track in its own right and Gordon we know you're a big Rocky fan anyway so what are your feelings on the Rocky soundtrack well i'll be honest and it's one of my least favorite rocky soundtracks but that's probably because it's less of a score and more of a soundtrack and i do prefer bill conti's stuff and i don't think you should have any rocky soundtrack that doesn't have a bill conti score the classic soft rock anthems used throughout certainly aren't my type of music but i can appreciate them from the time and you know they're good to sing along to and they are anthems almost all of them i mean there's a couple of duffers the gold west track i don't think fits the rest of the soundtrack and i can't really remember where in the film that is played but the song that i've gone for the standout track is robert tepper's no easy way out it's got great guitar and keyboard combo and it's a powerful vocal that just tells the tale of every rocky film that hard work and perseverance are the key and it's just as rocky said in a later film it's not how hard you can hit it's how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward that's how winning is done that's exactly the message that robert was belting out with there's no easy way out so i think that's easily the standout track for me and it's probably the only one of the tracks that are on there that i would choose to listen to outside of the film in terms of score because songs fit the film so well and because they are so of their time i think i would still give it a rating of three and a half out of five it's still very good and but one of the things that you just told me matt that i didn't realize because i like to buy the vinyl record of all of the soundtracks that we come up with i didn't realize there was a score that was released as well so i'll definitely be looking out for that and seeing if i can get a copy of that one to go with my soundtrack record i agree that looking back the bill conti stuff is streets ahead of this but the vince decola electronic score is such a pure 80s thing you know with all the heavy synths and all that kind of stuff and sort of repetitive themes you know the training montage in particular it just fitted the film and the era so well the training montage is great and i think that's the standout of the score side i think that's a really good track and i think maybe the score is more up my street than all these rock ballads Okay, so decent scores all round for the Rocky Four soundtrack. With an average of four stars, that puts it top of our fledgling soundtrack leaderboard above When the Wind Blows. Right, thanks very much, Matt. Moving on, we're going to go on to the section now, which is the video game section. This month's game was chosen as the 1984 Konami arcade game called Hypersports. It was a follow-on from the earlier track and field, and it features all new Olympic events. Like its predecessor, it has two buttons in the arcade, one action button per player. The Japanese release of the game is also official license for the 1984 Summer Olympics. So we've tried each game on different formats. Gordon, how did you get on with Hypersports? Well, I tried Hypersports on all of the 8-bit home computers that it was released for and the arcade. I'm a massive fan of Hypersports anyway. I think it's one of the best arcade games of all time. I think it improves on track and field with the choice of events that they've gone for. In terms of the arcade, you get seven events with swimming, skeet shooting, vault horse or long horse to the Americans, archery, triple jump, weightlifting and pole vault. On the home computer versions, as far as I could tell, none of them have the pole vault, which to be honest, 
least isn't a big loss because that was the one overly complicated event on there that I always struggled with. So the arcade one, absolutely love it. Like I say, there were so many different events, all pretty different, but using those simple controls, I, I really enjoyed it. I loved it on the home computers. I always loved the Spectrum version. Always thought I had rose-tinted glasses with my view of that the Spectrum version was nearly as good as the arcade. But having played them all, I stand by that. I do think it's nearly as good. The fact that it's one event less and the fact that it's a monochrome 8-bit computer and not a powerful arcade machine suggests that there is a difference. But in terms of playability, it's absolutely spot on. And the change from this colourful character to a guy with a big porn star moustache doesn't take anything away from what is a great game. I also tried the other home computers and I've got to say they are a very mixed bag. The BBC Micro, pretty good for BBC. It's got some nice animation, but it's got really poor graphics. So they move well, but they look crap. And it's got some really odd colours and some terrible flicker on some of the levels. The Amstrad is just terrible with its jerky graphics and it's got an absolutely pathetic vaulting level that's revolting. It's awful. And the Commodore 64 has got nice graphics, awful animation, so kind of the opposite to the BBC. So I think all around the Spectrum is by far the best of the home computer versions, but you just can't beat the arcade one. I love it. And I would give the arcade version of Hypersports 4 out of 5. Thanks, Gordon. Good in-depth knowledge of the different versions there. Matt, how did you get on with it? Well, I'm a fan of it for sure. I've played it a lot. It's got more variety of events than track and field, definitely. But I don't think overall it's as much fun as track and field personally. There's less button bashing, which you could argue is a good thing. And it's more strategic use of the buttons, particularly in like the skeet shooting level. But I think that makes it less enjoyable overall. I think the whole idea of those games was to bash the buttons as hard as you can. And not doing that on every stage makes some of them a little bit tedious. The swimming is basically just like the sprint in the original track and field with the addition of tapping the button to breathe. I noticed on that it's possible to get a 3,000 point bonus, but I wasn't quite sure how because it seems to be when I finished under a certain time, but then on one go I finished in under a minute and didn't get the bonus. The skeet shooting is definitely my favourite event and I've managed to get perfect score on the first two sequences. You can get into a nice rhythm and you can also get a 1,000 point bonus if you get a perfect round after getting a perfect round the round before. Don't know if anyone managed that or not. And this is where I started to have problems now with playing it on a keyboard rather than playing it with real arcade buttons because the long course, I really couldn't get past it. I've never found it too hard on playing it on an arcade cab with buttons, but playing it on a keyboard, I really struggled to get enough rotations and then land properly to get the qualifying score, which on the skill level I was playing was 9.1, which seems very high. And most times I couldn't get higher than 9. I only got past it twice in about 30 goes. I actually got to the point where I was playing it as four players at once, all with the same keys just so I could have enough goes on the long course and still didn't get past it. So I did get to the archery a couple of times, which again seemed more difficult than I remember to get the qualifying score. So yeah, I was really struggling with it, playing it on a keyboard. I did also play the BBC Micro version, which as Gordon said, is pretty decent. The graphics are a bit hit and miss. I thought it captured the feel of the arcade game well. I did play that on a real BBC Micro, and the biggest issue I had with that was that the controls, which you can't change, were Z, forward slash, and space. And the Z and the forward slash are right on opposite ends of the bottom row of the keyboard and it feels really unintuitive to have the buttons so 
far apart and it's also got no multiplayer and no high scores so i couldn't tell you how well i did on that the other version i tried was the famicom version which i bought a cartridge of to play on the famicom and then found that i couldn't play it because you have to buy a special controller called the hypershock controller and they're about 35 quid so i didn't bother but what i did notice about the hypershock is it's only got two buttons so on that you use one button for all the running and swimming and what have you and one button to jump and the only other thing i can tell you about the famicom version is it may not have all the events on it but at least the order of events is different because it starts with the skeet shoot so overall i don't think it's as good as track and field and i'm going to give it three stars <laughs> The one thing is that with the exception of the swimming, I don't think any of the events are actually multiplayer. So you don't play against someone, you're just basically doing it on your own. And I think that lets it down a little bit. That's a very good point. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, that is a good point. And then you can play one after the other, but you don't actually play together on the levels. Yeah, that's interesting. I played the arcade version, obviously. Tried it on my little arcade machine, which worked better than trying it on my modified Xbox. My son Alex is brilliant at skeet shoot. He's incredible at it. I just don't know how he does it. It just literally gets perfect all the time. But I enjoy the game as a whole, particularly like the archery, because you've got to get the accuracy of the arrows. is pretty good. And I've always been a fan of the track and field high sports games. I'm not brilliant at it, but I actually just enjoy playing it, whether I'm good or not. So good mixture of events, like Matt said, not so many multiplayers, obviously. And yeah, I think it didn't really improve. It was just an add-on to track and field I didn't think it improved much on the actual format I tried two other versions I played the Commodore 64 version because I've got that so I play that on the 64 I think the graphics are good I think it does portray the arcade game very well with the cartoons type characters it's a little bit chunky in places as the 64 can be but I think overall it plays pretty well I think it sounds good the music's pretty good I tried the Spectrum version yeah it's, it wasn't too bad actually the graphics were better in other places than others the skeet shoot was pretty good and the archery were fine the actual game itself played well the only thing that made me laugh is the running guy it just looks like shaggy out scooby-doo's put on a running kit he's got a shaggy haircut it looks like a hippie and when he does the long horse it looks a bit strange i didn't play the amstrad but i watched a, a playthrough on youtube and i'm glad i didn't really bother to play it to be honest it's just really strange it looks like it's really small graphics and it looks like it's not anything to do with hypersports it was just like some sports game that just vaguely sort of tied in with it but overall i've been a big fan of hypersports track and field and i've still enjoyed playing the arcade version now and i will give it four out of five Right, the scores are in on Hypersports, and that gives it 3.7 out of 5, which puts it top of the leaderboard, overtaking Raid over Moscow. I haven't registered my scores to mention them now, unfortunately, but the two arcade gurus are going to have a little battle now. So we're going to find out who's the overall champion of Hypersports out of Gordon and Matt. Ready, steady, go! Well, 38,300 was my best score on the arcade version. I'm quite surprised it's that low if you get past the long course because I've only got that far and I've got 37,760. So if we could get past that, I could have definitely surpassed 38,000. But I have got over 50,000 on it on an arcade machine, but obviously that's not what we're comparing now. Well, I think the reason that mine was so low is my swimming was very low scored. I was only just within the time because I'd got my keys wrong. So, but I made it up on the other events, so I think that's probably how you've caught up. You must have been quite fast a swimmer. Yeah, 
I did do the swimming in under a minute on one occasion and if you get the perfect on the first round of the skeet shoot and then again on the second round you get 8,200 the second time round so that probably helped if you, uh. that is what makes it interesting is that level it's a cumulative score so if you do well three times over you can get a really good score whereas on most of them it's obviously only your best score that counts yeah and it was only my last round on the skeet shooting that I got a perfect as well which is probably the worst time to do it absolutely so that means I'm a champion for two shows running well done thanks thanks very much gentlemen the next section is classic scene but what we need to know is what Matt has picked for this classic scene and I'm intrigued to find out over to you Matthew my classic scene is from a classic movie but perhaps not a scene you'd expect so I've gone for a classic scene from Star Wars, the original Star Wars, which is obviously a film full of classic scenes, but I've chosen a scene that features no action whatsoever. It's one of the earliest scenes in the film that gives you the feeling that the film is part of a bigger story and gives depth to the Star Wars universe, and it shows that regardless of his other faults, George Lucas was a master of crafting a story and that he was already thinking about how the story would progress beyond the first film, even though at that point there was every chance the film would fail and there wouldn't be any sequels. Obviously, we know better now. It's a scene that could also have easily been cut from the film or heavily edited. Doesn't mean a lot at the time, but is absolutely vital to the story told in the trilogy. And without it, the pivotal scene in The Empire Strikes Back would not have had the same impact. And it's the scene where Obi-Wan gives Luke his father's lightsaber and explains a bit of backstory. It's obviously since been the focus of many an internet meme in light of the events of the prequel trilogy and the fact that Luke Skywalker, first thing he does when he gets the lightsaber is look down it. (laughs) But it's also one of the cleverest scenes in the film in terms of giving backstory to the characters, introducing the concept of the Force before bringing the story straight back into the moment with the playing of Princess Leia's message to Obi-Wan Kenobi. So my classic scene this time around is Obi-Wan giving Luke his father's lightsaber. No, my father didn't fight in the wars. He was a navigator on a spice freighter. That's what your uncle told you. He didn't hold with your father's ideals, thought he should have stayed here and not gotten involved. You fought in the Clone Wars? Yes. I was once a Jedi Knight, the same as your father. I wish I'd known him. He was the best star pilot in the galaxy. And a cunning warrior. I understand you've become quite a good pilot yourself. And he was a good friend. Which reminds me, I have something here for you. Your father wanted you to have this when you were old enough. But your uncle wouldn't allow it. He feared you might follow old Obi-Wan on some damn fool idealistic crusade like your father did. Sir, if you'll not be needing me, I'll close down for a while. Sure, go ahead. What is it? It's your father's lightsaber. This is the weapon of a Jedi Knight. Not as clumsy or random as a blaster. An elegant weapon for a more civilized age. For over a thousand generations, the Jedi Knights were the guardians of peace and justice in the old Republic. Before the dark times. Before the Empire. How did my father die? A young Jedi named Darth Vader, who was a pupil of mine until he turned to evil helped the Empire hunt down and destroy the Jedi Knights. He betrayed and murdered your father. Now the Jedi are all but extinct. 
Vader was seduced by the dark side of the Force. The Force? Now, the Force is what gives the Jedi his power. It's an energy field created by all living things. It surrounds us and penetrates us. It binds the galaxy together. Okay, thanks, chaps. The next section we've got is our three of the best. The theme is sports this month, so we're going to bring the best films starring former sports stars in a major role and not just a cameo. So, what are we going to go for? Matt? My top three movies starring ex-sportsmen. In third place, I've gone for Welcome to the Jungle, also known as The Rundown. It's a 2003 film starring former professional footballer and more famously wrestler Dwayne The Rock Johnson as a bounty hunter tasked with tracking down his boss's son played by Sean William Scott. It's a fairly typical action movie but is elevated above mediocrity by the chemistry between Johnson and Scott in the lead roles and is worth checking out as the first film that showcased the talents that have made Dwayne Johnson such a big star. And in second place, Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels, which featured football hardman Vinnie Jones as debt collector Big Chris. Not a big role in the film, but a significant one, especially the scene where he smashes the rival's head to pieces with a car door. This was Jones's movie debut, and he was still actually playing for Crystal Palace, I think, at the time. And since then, he's gone on to play many similar roles in a variety of mostly terrible action films. And my number one pick is They Live, the 1988 film starring the late Rowdy Roddy Piper, a former Golden Gloves boxing champion, judo black belt, and another ex-pro wrestler. This is arguably John Carpenter's last great film and stars Piper as a man that discovers the world has been overtaken by aliens that have infiltrated society who can only be seen with the use of special sunglasses. Piper does a decent job in a role that was probably intended for Kurt Russell, and his sports background brings extra realism to a brilliant fight scene with co-star Keith David. He also gets to utter one of the most quotable movie lines of all time, which as we all know is, I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass, but I'm all out of bubblegum. So that's my top three. Excellent. G. Okay, well, I've looked at it from the other angle rather than the movie. I've looked at the actor. So in third place, I've gone for Vinnie Jones, not for the lock, stock and two smoking barrels, slightly more than cameo. I'm not a fan of Vinnie Jones as a footballer or as an actor, except for his role as Juggernaut in X-Men Last Stand. I thought he was excellent in that role. So yeah, I've gone for Vinnie Jones in X-Men Last Stand. In second place, I've gone for Michael Jordan in Space Jam, probably the most famous basketball player of all time. Yes, he plays himself, but it's a caricature of himself who gives up basketball to become a professional baseball player. It's a fully scripted movie and not him just being his real life self. So I think that counts. But in first place, my Rocky love continues with Carl Weathers, who played four seasons for the NFL team, the Oakland Raiders. He's obviously massive to me for his roles in Rocky 1 to 4, but also in Predator as well. He's excellent and he's also in Happy Gilmore, which is another sport film that I quite enjoyed. So there you go, they're my top three. Thanks, Gordon. Can I also say that I wanted to pick Roddy Piper, even though on my notes I called him Randy Savage, for They Live, which is a wonderful film and he's brilliant in it, but wrestling isn't sport. No, it's not, but he was a former Golden Gloves boxing champion and a judo black belt. I'll give you that one then. (laughs) Thank you, gents. 
my three are the best. At number three is Charles Aaron Bubba Smith, who played Hightower in the Police Academy films. He was a very small-time American football player, and he did play in the Canadian Football League as well. Police Academy is much maligned. A lot of people don't like it, but the first two or three films I thought were really good, and I always liked the character of Hightower. He just played the part very deadpan, but played it very well, and was just always something I really enjoyed when I was younger. So Bubba Smith in Police Academy is in at number three for me. In at two is the aforementioned Carl Weathers, but my film that I chose him for is, is his excellent performance alongside Arnold Schwarzenegger in Predator. We all know what Predator's about, and I just thought, as the Marines are getting picked off, I thought Carl Weathers played the character very well, right up to the point when he got killed. And my first choice is another chap that we have mentioned already, and that's Dwayne The Rock Johnson. But the film I went for is a very recent film, and it's 2016 comedy film Central Intelligence. I really enjoyed this film, and I think he plays the sort of downhill friend. We don't know at the start what his situation is, and I just think he plays a character very different to his normal films. There is violence in it, but his character development is very different. And him and Kevin Hart have a lot of good interaction together. I think they seem to enjoy making the film, and it's a really good buddy story, and I really enjoy it. So, for me, that was my favourite film with The Rock in it. So, number one was Central Intelligence. Yeah, very good film, that. Very surprising that it was as good as it was. I just found it really interesting that Kevin Hart and Dwayne Johnson played the opposite roles to what you would have expected if you read about the two characters. I thought that was quite clever. But just when you talked about Predator, what really disappointed me is that they killed Carl Weathers off because surely Predator 2 was supposed to be Carl Weathers and not Danny Glover because Danny Glover's not an action star. Well, no, I mean, he's in Lethal Weapon, but he's not the action star no. in that. I guess they never expected to make a sequel to Predator, really, and then when they did, it's like, well, who can we use? But Carl Weathers would have been perfect for that uh, role to leave yeah. but they'd killed him off, so should have made it a prequel. Yeah. It still makes me laugh, the Carl Weathers, the last scene, pretty much, where you can quite clearly see his arm behind his back when it's just been shot off. You'll notice that next time you watch it, if you've never <laughs> noticed now. it before. <laughs> Right, that's the end of the podcast for this month and our sports themes. So from all of us at Movie Muse, thanks very much for listening. The final whistle has sounded. No extra time. They think it's all over. It is now.